0: Join me as we step outside the box, break away from the paradigm, and embrace our destinies. Take a walk with me into the dark. Tonight's guest, author Marilyn A. Hudson. We are going to dive into some of her works, and one particular, When Death Rode the Rails. We're going to dive into this book with Marilyn A. Hudson here in just a moment. First, I want to welcome you into the OGS Network. Right here in the OGS studios here in the middle of America. My name is Brad Heath. I'm your host. Aaron the Baron is the producer tonight. And our sponsor this evening is Brat Legacy Films. Go to BratLegacyFilms.com. They have a documentary that they are currently filming. Uh, This documentary honors the American brat or the American dependent, as they are also known. Um... One of the executive producers is Kimberly McKay. She is an author from here in Oklahoma. And John Schwab, who is an actor, lives in London. And John, if you're watching the new uh, Jack Ryan series, John plays uh, CIA director John Miller, or uh, CIA director Miller, in that show. So be sure and check that out, BratLegacyFilms.com. Go check them out. Uh, this project should be coming out maybe later this year or early 2024. So let's get into tonight's guest, Marilyn A. Hudson. I'm going to read a little bit of her bio here so you guys know who we've talked about. And she has been called the genie of bizarre historical research, which is a great, great uh, title there. I love that one. Um, She's blended her love for history and research and uh, an unending curiosity to craft works of fiction and information. Uh, She has worked uh, several jobs uh, as a librarian across uh, the state of Oklahoma, as well as worked as a stringer uh, for a newspaper in Enid, Oklahoma. Her published works include uh, the very popular Oklahoma Bad Girls, uh, The Mound, which was co-written by Colin Hudson, uh, The Bones of Summer, Foul Harvest, the Sword of Anath. Hope I got that right. If not, she'll correct us. Uh, when Death Road the Rails, something we're going to touch on tonight. Uh, Murderous Marriages and Sooner Saucers, Oklahoma UFOs, 1947 to 1969. We could probably touch on all those, honestly. That was all sound great. Um, a couple of things you need to know before we jump in here. She has her BA in History uh, and her Masters of Library and Information Studies from the University of Oklahoma. She's coming to us live from Stroud, I believe. Is that right, Marilyn? Are you in Stroud? That's right. So Stroud, Oklahoma, it's kind of like the uh, it's kind of like the middle point if you're on the uh, Turner Turnpike between Oklahoma and Oklahoma or Tulsa and Oklahoma City, right? That's correct.
1: But halfway between the places.
0: You were not there for the uh, for that big tornado that destroyed the Outlet Mall, were you?
1: No, that was
0: before we moved here, thank goodness. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, every time I drive by there, I'm just amazed that there's this this giant concrete pad that used to house all these different shops, and now it's just, that's all it is. It's just a concrete pad. That's right. So let's talk about this book, Marilyn. I, I mean, I've, I've come across it before, and I've always wanted to, to read it. And full disclosure, I, I have a copy ordered. I've not read it. Um, But I wanted to get you on to talk about it because it really strikes a nerve with me. Um, Railroads, early 1900s, um, a possible serial killer on the loose. I mean, all of those things really add up to a great story. They do. They really, really do.
1: That was one of the things that grabbed me was in the process of doing some other research, you know, run across things that then just won't let go of you, and that was the way it was with this. I kept running across these strange, uh, horrific deaths. That were being reported in these small town Oklahoma newspapers, and you know, of course, they, the the uh, language was always over the top. It was it was not just terrible; it was horrific and gruesome and bloody. You know, every uh, every term that was a, a, a hyperbole uh, was the one that they used to try and sell papers. I
0: think. Oh, for but, sure, and, and 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 not not to interrupt you, but early 1900s i mean there is there's a lot going on in oklahoma i mean we're we're not quite statehood yet that happens in 1907 um the frank phillips family is moving to bartlesville of course we all know what goes on there um the capital is moving from guthrie to oklahoma city i mean there's a lot that's going on in the state of oklahoma and and correct me if i'm wrong but wasn't oklahoma a little late to the party when it comes to railroads coming through the state
1: It depends on which part of the state that you're talking to. Uh, Early, very early on, uh, in the end of the 1800s, there was a uh, train line that came up out of Texas and crossed the eastern part of the state going up into uh, Kansas and Missouri. That was called the Katy and it was a uh, very uh, popular route of course the eastern part of the state was called indian territory and it was primarily under the uh, management of the federal government and the various tribal uh, reservations that were in place there so you had a whole different setup and uh, different rules applied uh, all across the eastern part and we're all familiar with 1889 and the the great land run that uh, filled up the center part of the state, Oklahoma City, Guthrie, Norman, those areas. But that only covered about your hand wide area on the map of Oklahoma, because then the western part was still under the control of the government and the native tribes that had been positioned there. So you had this wonderful conflict right up the middle between these two Oklahoma and Indian territories where there was everything was a uh, conflict because it was dry on one
0: side and liquor was available on the other. (laughs) Right. So there were all kinds of opportunities for
1: people to do things that were illegal uh, and sometimes just downright fun.
0: Yeah, and I've read that... Really, the Civil War, which was late 1800s, really kind of delayed some of the some of the development of the railroads through Oklahoma. But you're right, you know, eastern side really uh, a side that was unchartered, you know, for many years and was Indian territory. And then you mentioned the land run, which took place in 1889. Um, 1.9 million acres, I believe, is what was up for grabs. And later on. Uh, there was the, the Northwestern Land Run, which was really a the wild... Strip. Yes, the Cherokee Strip. And that was a wild time, was it not? Yes,
1: it was. That was in 1893, and it was just as wild and crazy as the first one. It was, to give credit, it was a little better organized than the 1889
0: one was. So when... So there were a
1: lot of people who showed up, but there was uh, a lot more organization to how it was run.
0: So... Your book uh, basically goes and and dives into the period of 1900 to 1920. So as we get caught up uh, through the late 1800s and into the 1900s, what really kicks this story off?
1: Well, in about 1902, there began to be a lot of stories about trains and their intersection with uh, humans. Uh, and the papers are filled with that. Uh, the trains were fast. They were dangerous. They were loud. And every every once in a while, there was a, a team that, that ran away and was scared and ran into a train and was killed. There were uh, older people. There was the story of a deaf farmer who actually never heard the train and was hit by it. So there were a lot of Just, you know, the accidents that uh, in later days there would be uh, automobile accidents that would be reported. But in this time period, in the early 1900s, it's these uh, horrific collisions and trains jumping the track in this area and that area across the country. Those always filled the newspapers. But in that period of time, there were four four or five major railroads that were working hard to try and cover the new territories that were being opened up by this this wonderful expansion of business and population that was going on. The Katy had the old line, and they were in there pretty deep. But there was also the Atchison and Topeka, there was the Rhode Island, and there were a couple of other minor local uh, Trained companies that their names shifted and changed, you know, in a matter of years uh, from one thing to another. But they were constantly there and they were all seeking the same thing. They wanted the priority land, they wanted the priority access, they wanted to be the first and make the money and keep the money. And so when I began doing some of this research, I began to see that. I was following accidents, these terrible, terrible situations where a young man was ground to a pulp against the rails, his, blood, his skull crushed, his body dismembered. And then I began to notice that you could follow that up the track at periodic moments. It was almost as if someone was on that train and every once in a while someone would be killed right and the local police they were not as dumb as we sometimes like to think because they quite often realized that the bodies were too cold when they were found the bodies had been laid across the tracks in order to hide the crime And quite often the, the instances of individuals falling asleep on the tracks right. became almost laughable. Looking into it, researching how many decibels, uh, the train whistle from that time period created, uh, what the vibrations were like as an approaching train of that magnitude came down the track. A person would have to be dead to not feel it and not be aware of it and move out of the way.
0: Right. Were were, were you able to determine or even uh, just research to find out, where a lot of the, the railroad workers, were they local or would they come in from out of state? <laughs>
1: Some of them were local, but there were a lot of them, especially on some of the, uh, the larger uh, connections, like the, uh, the Katy, the Santa Fe, the Rhode Island. Uh, they were ones that had uh, lines that crisscrossed into other states. So they had a larger uh, manpower pool to pull from, so to speak. And quite often, there was a lot of conflict between these railroads. And there were bullies, uh, hired henchmen, that were often used to uh, ride the train and make sure that hitchhikers, what were becoming called hobos, uh, were not on the train. And they weren't too careful or concerned about how uh, safely individuals were removed from the trains. So there were a lot of fights. There were a lot of beatings up of individuals, uh, but strangely, most of those individuals were very helpful to the railroad's uh, secret detectives. That they mm. put out to try and solve some of their problems.
0: Right. Do now, do you? I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you do you know if Um, or or how many of these victims were actually locals who may have actually stumbled onto a track and and, and then been run over? How many of them were potential victims who were maybe not from here, maybe just riding the rail, maybe one of those enforcers gets a hold of them? Um, I would imagine that, you know, in the early 1900s, you can't just, word doesn't spread too fast, but the way you do make the word spread pretty fast is you make someone an example. And I could I could easily see one of these enforcer types, you know, making one of the the rail riders or, or one of the hobos an example.
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, in uh, surveying all of the names and individuals that I came up with, uh, I used a criteria for those that I looked at in the book, and those were, you know, I, I uh, xed out those that were most obvious accidents, those that were uh, some kind of a uh, a beat down like that because police already had someone in their sights for that kind of activity. Uh, So I tried to keep it to the ones that were a little bit more mysterious, a little bit more questionable, and the majority of the individuals were individuals who lived in Oklahoma. They were, um, the the ones that were coming in and riding the train from other places were very few compared uh, to the scope of the other individuals who were victims. Uh, Quite often they were young men. Uh, Very few of them were over the age of 30. Uh, There were a few that ranged into the 50s and 60s, but you had a lot that were teenage to 30. And they're the ones who are like three boys from uh, Paul's Valley who were found laying on a track, and the train ran over all three of them, and they had been strangely asleep and were not able to wake up
0: Mm. yeah strange
1: Mm -hmm. so it was it was cases like that those were the ones that was kind of like oh question mark hanging over my head this is really strange something just doesn't fit it doesn't feel right uh my, my suspicious nature just really began to to bounce
0: around and say oh some, something strange is happening here you know and and everyone needs to keep this in perspective because at the time traveling by train was was the preferred method of travel if you were going across land and people were fascinated by trains people people would come to to, to watch trains pass people would they even had staged train accidents that people would come out and watch. That's um,
1: right. Have your picture taken with the ruins.
0: Yeah, and a head-on collision, and and people would even there would even be f- uh, fatalities at these events because parts are flying everywhere, and everything on a train's heavy, and and so you know these these uh, types of th- this mode of transportation was a big game changer, not just for this country, but for people who are doing nefarious things, right?
1: That's right. That's right. And most of those train accidents that were occurring like that across the country uh, involved uh, trains that were speeding. Uh, that quite often became the, uh, the recipe for disaster was that the train just, you know, the engineer just let it open too far and, and lost control of it around a, uh, a warped rail or, you know, some other natural calamity that it had not expected to see. But one of the things that about this was at the same time, the railroads are being pushed by the U.S. government uh, to look at things like transportation safety. Mm. And so they began to look at uh, optimum speeds, uh, loads, uh, crossing signals uh, various things like that that would be uh, measures of uh, safety uh, they hired uh, railroad detectives who would search out uh, people who would be who might be using the uh, railroad as a means of uh, conducting some nefarious business or assisting outlaws or you know various things like that. And so those undercover policemen, as they were, uh, quite often became well-known in the local uh, hobo villages, uh, the outcast uh, fires that were uh, set up alongside uh, isolated old oh, supply depots and depots in towns and things like that, were that those who lived on the fringe of society, who liked to just hop the rail, Uh, took their chances and avoided the the bulls in the rail yard and anybody else who might want to kick them off. But it was a place where there was a lot of information. And in one instance, one of those detectives talked to some of those men in one of those camps, and he got some information that indicated that they were afraid and that there were people that were hurting other people. So it's very interesting that after about that point, some of the information about some of these cases becomes a little bit more concealed. The uh, writers are determined to try and give you as much information in bloody color as they can, but uh, the end results, uh, who they looked for, what they found as far as searching for people who might have been responsible for these crimes... Uh, becomes a big blank and mm. another question
0: mark. Right. Were, were there any journalists who were trying to solve these cases at the time?
1: None that I've been able to find. There were a couple of... Uh reporters who who rode the rail to give some color, and that kind of thing. But there were none that I've been able to find, any uh, Nellie Bly kinds of undercover journalists who were looking to see what was really going on. Right. But there were individuals who uh, did indicate that the railroads were competing with each other and the fight was getting dirty. The Rock Island had hired a group of thugs the Atchison and Topeka Santa Fe had some as well, and they were both scrambling to try and get access to a particular new stretch of land in Oklahoma that was uh, going to be uh, a wonderful connection for their railroads uh, to spur the connections going out to Colorado and back down to Texas and up into Kansas. So it was really an important uh, bid for the companies. And at that point, there were individuals that were kicking people off. They were throwing them out the open doors along with uh, dishes and pots and pans and anything else that they could find. And the detective was very quick to point out that that's what some of this was. But those actions didn't match the other actions of somebody beating someone up, strangling them hitting them over the head until they were dead, and then dragging their body across a train track. And in several instances, police found in the grass alongside the tracks, they found the place where the person had actually been killed because of uh, personal things that were there, a bloody uh, stick that was found that matched the imprint on the skull, and... His body had been, been dragged up the incline and laid across the tracks and was run over by the train that came by. Wow. they were looking for
0: it apparently right, right.
1: and told it' just right.
0: do you think uh, that there could put potentially have been maybe uh, one individual who was who was doing this or do you think this is more of a crime of opportunity and it just happened multiple times?
1: have been a little bit of both you know during the same time period from uh, the late 1890s up through uh, the 1910s there uh, are several uh, instances all through the deep south up into kansas up into nebraska and in colorado of individuals that were using the rail to access places and we're attacking people with axes. Wow. And so the Axeman is a motif that you see a lot in the, the Deep South during this time period. Uh, it becomes the, um, the, uh, the center of the story in a small Iowa community where an entire family was wiped out by a man with an axe. And there were murders that could be traced all across the country of someone that was apparently using the railroad. To do just exactly that, sneak into a community, kill people, and then escape using the rails. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that in the wild and open and very woolly Oklahoma of the time, <laughs> right. that there could have been somebody who said, Ooh, <laughs> I'm going to have some fun Sure. in that thick way that those kind of individuals do.
0: Right. And you mentioned the uh, the three boys in Paul's Valley. How how often did you come across this story of somebody, quote, sleeping on the tracks?
1: There were at least ten instances. That's a lot. That they assumed they assumed that, oh, well, he must have just got fallen down drunk and didn't hear the train and just killed him. But... Uh, once, twice maybe, that many times, I mean, really, to be honest, you know, <laughs> it's a little suspicious when it keeps happening.
0: Right, and, and to kind of put it in modern day terms, I have read a story where someone had their, their ear, earbuds in, and they were out for a jog, crossing a track, never heard or saw the train coming, got hit and killed. We didn't have that and, and back then. Cases,
1: yeah, and there were cases. There were cases in this, uh, and those were the ones that you know I I uh, decided not to look at because they were so obviously they were an accident. There was an elderly farmer from uh, Rosebud up by Tulsa, and he didn't have his his hearing horn with him and never heard the train and he turned around and he was looking at somebody else and stepped off and got trapped into the into uh, the uh line of a oncoming train and was killed Uh, a team of horses got away from the farmer the young boy that uh was uh driving the team, and could not control those animals. And they became frightened at the noise in town, at the noise of the train, and they ran flat into the side of that train and destroyed the wagon, destroyed the horses, and the young boy lost his
0: life. Mm. You know, this is one of those periods of time in our nation's history where there was a lot of money floating around. There was a lot of money in commerce, oil, of course, the railroad. Um, I can see how railroad companies and people who not only just own the railroad, but own the lines that the, that the train cars are on, I could see how this could turn ugly real fast. Did did you come across anything that... that uh, maybe mention something about how these companies went after one another?
1: Just the uh, the in- information that the one uh, p- uh, railroad detective had found, that he'd found and accused the uh, Rock Island line of hiring bullies who were beating up people uh, in the station yards, in the rail yards, uh to make sure that their message of staying off of their trains came into play, that they were the ones that were harassing um, the hobos and the other people that were just hitching a ride and you know trying to get someplace quick uh, and were going the easiest way that they could find, uh, and they were harassing them, throwing them off the trains, beating them up sometimes with a group. Of uh, their bully friends, and so there there were individuals that were being used by those rail rail companies that to intimidate and harass and inspire fear in people messing around with their trains. Don't try and get free rides. Don't go around our trains.
0: Period. Right. How how often and. In- Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but how how often was our military utilizing
1: train lines? At that time period, not very very much. We were kind of between uh, conflicts at the time. We had just finished the Spanish-American War in the late 1890s, and so we were really in a time of peace, and that was uh, part of the problem, I think, was that we had... uh, some social issues that were arising at that time period. One of the highest categories of hobos in that time period were, uh, of course, males of a mature age, 30s, 40s, 50s years old from the East, who were not able to find work and had come West to try and find work. And so they would often hitch a ride and climb on the top of a car and uh, ride uh, to a place where they thought they might be able to get to work. But it was also an era when for some strange reason, and experts still are a little divided over why, that there was a flood of young adolescent males that came out of the cities in the east and made their way west. A lot of them were just seeking an adventure that they'd seen and read about in the dimes. Dime Store novels about the West and all the excitement that was to be had out here. Uh, But uh, quite a few of the uh, individuals that were riding the rails in that time period were young men 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. And so, of course, a lot of those victims that are being found at the side of the roads in pieces and beaten to a bloody pulp by train or man, were young people.
0: Possibly young enough to not really be able to fight off anyone.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: That, that made them basically targets, easy victims.
1: That's right. And, you know, when you open up the, the door to people that might be uh, predators... Uh, And might find a way uh, to uh, to go hunting, as it were. Uh, That would be an excellent place for a sociopath, a serial killer, a any anyone who might have a a bent in that direction. Right. In 1902, there was a story out of Tulsa just the the west part of Tulsa was kind of the the poor side of town it was where the boom was happening as far as the rail and the development that was going on so you had a lot of uh, poor people searching and scrambling for an existence and one of those families was called the Priester family and they had a little boy about five years old And he was last seen talking to someone by one of the water towers that serviced the trains that went by the rail yard. And he was not seen again. Hmm. His family did not look for him right away. They may have been away from home, actually, at the time. Uh, But someone had seen him talking to a man by that water tank and then he was gone family, friends, police neighbors, citizens began searching for this little five year old boy to see what had happened to him they did not find him until about three four days later and he was in a grain car down by Ada several hundred miles to the south west of that Tulsa area and he was found under the grain that they were unloading from the car
0: Mm.
1: he was beaten he was bloodied his clothes had been ripped off of his body and he was actually buried in that area because his parents never came forward
0: and it's obvious that this this young boy is not going to dig his way down to the bottom of this grain car after you know getting into a fight with someone I mean it's obvious what happened right
1: right right someone obviously thought that that was probably a good way to get rid of the evidence and so uh, he was tossed into a, a grain car.
0: And there's no way now, to identify him. There's no, there's nothing he's carrying that's going to tell you where he's from. You, you would almost have to put out in every paper for hundreds of miles a photo of this kid to try and figure out who he was and where he was from.
1: That's right. And with, uh, with that time period, you were lucky if you had a paper come out once every two weeks uh, to spread news like that. So it was only the fact that they actually had uh, detailed descriptions by the person who had seen the uh, individual speaking to the child there in Tulsa and others who had seen him earlier in the day. So they knew what clothes he was wearing. They had a physical description of him. And so when that body showed up, the uh, the telegraph message went out that they had found a young boy and the Tulsa police realized that Ah, uh, and they were able to make a uh, identification on the young man, and again, you know, local local people down there had to bury him because there was no one to claim him.
0: Right. In your research, was there was there one particular case that really just stood out to you? I mean, it might have been that one.
1: That has that has been the one that has really been a, a strong one for me. Um, anything that involves children is always something that uh, tugs at my heartstrings and and makes me you know very upset and sad. Um, there are so many possibilities there uh, that uh, I'd say probably that's the one that's the most most disturbing for me.
0: Our guest tonight's Marilyn A. Hudson. She is the author. Of a book that I want you all to go check out. Uh, I, I believe you can find it on Amazon. When Death Rode the Rails. I want everyone to go go pick this one up, Marilyn. This sounds to me like, and there's a theory out there that there are several serial killers who are long haul truck drivers. This this is very, kind of similar to that, I think.
1: Yes, yes, it is. I think that you know anyone that. Uh, it, is doing something like that. They're going to find the the best way to get it done. What's the most effective for them? How can they be the most efficient in what they do? And so, you know, logically, if you're if you've got access to the rails and you can get on there and you can find people and know when the trains are coming through and how to get rid of the body, You've got a good setup.
0: That's something else, too, right? I mean, you you just said it and I I hadn't thought of it, but these trains really ran on a schedule.
1: That's right. That's right. That's why some of them, some of them, the train uh, engineers actually witnessed individuals that took a body to the track and then ran away. But they were too far away for them to give any uh, uh, good, solid descriptions, and it was almost uh, too far away from, uh, too close for them to actually you know, stop in in good time in some instances. But uh, a couple of times they were able to stop, and it was clear that the individual had been beaten and murdered. Sometimes their throat slit, sometimes their uh, head caved in uh, with a heavy object. Uh, some just beaten to death.
0: Where were oh, we? That
1: would have been hidden.
0: Right, absolutely. Because if you get hit by a train, there's probably not going to be a whole lot left. I mean, it's going to do you damage. Know,
1: quite, often, quite often, the description was very, uh, very gruesome that uh, parts of a body might be spread out over uh, up and down a hundred yards of train track.
0: Was Was forensics even a thing in the early 1900s for our law enforcement?
1: The early the the only thing that was coming into vogue then was the Bertillon uh, fingerprint method. Uh, there were some that were still taking some larger police stations or services, uh, Wichita, Kansas City, things like that, that were actually uh, taking photos of uh, people that they arrested and taking measurements of their skull because they believed that the the size, shape, and lumps that were on your head determined, you know, your level of criminality mm. at that time period. And uh, the fingerprinting uh, process, that was a foreign idea that they still weren't too convinced with
0: that it was going to uh, solve anything. Right. And... Uh, in that time period as you get through the early 1900s and getting closer to the 1920s we have the start of World War one and that's, right. that's got to be a, a crazy time to be alive because I believe the numbers 85,000 Oklahomans served in World War one mm-hmm. they even used uh, uh, Choctaw code talkers in World War one I. I know the I know the Cherokee get a lot of credit. World War II, uh, we actually used Choctaw Talk code talkers in World War I. hmm
1: Yeah, there, there were a lot of things going on. Going into World War I, there were a lot of tensions in Oklahoma. Uh, we had a very strong socialist party in Oklahoma at the time. Uh, so there was a lot of conflict in Oklahoma between the socialists that were trying to uh, organize uh, the... Uh, Patriots, as you might call them, uh, that were against all of that. And then a great influx of foreign individuals that just confused and added to the whole process.
0: Was there ever anyone of note, anyone of uh, public influence that, that died on a railroad?
1: Uh, not in a suspicious uh, way. Uh, To to be honest, most of the individuals that were targeted for these kinds of crimes that I found were these were um, poor, homeless, simple farmers, school boys, uh, out-of-work men, uh, that kind of thing. Right. So they were the ones that in that time period, everything was very uh, stratus-driven. So everything was... uh, Dependent upon how much money you had, what your uh, status level in society was, and that type of thing. And so, these were people that didn't count.
0: Sure, and and easily forgotten. That's right. If if our if our listeners go pick up this book, uh, when death rode the rails, what what can they expect to uh, to take from this?
1: Oh, I think they'll see that there's a, uh, the problem that exists when you do not have good communication between uh, communities for law, law enforcement purposes because they could not contact any other areas to see if there had been similar deaths. A lot of deaths that were found bodies that were recovered uh, could have been put together as a vast network of similar crimes, but they weren't thinking beyond their own small little world. And so the ability for them to reach out and connect with the wider network of information to find similarities and solve crimes was many, many decades in the future.
0: Right well I want to encourage everyone to go um, go get this book it's gonna be a good read I'm excited to read it uh, as soon as my copy gets here Marilyn I'm gonna read it and I'm gonna I'm gonna text you and I'm gonna give you some of my thoughts because uh, we might have to have you have you come back on before we let you out of here though I also want to talk about sooner saucers because we on this show we look up in the sky a lot. And uh, we've had numerous guests on. In fact, uh, ufologist Gentry Anderson was just here. And um, tell me about this project and this book, Sooner Saucers.
1: Okay. Well, one of the first things I learned when I moved to Oklahoma many, many moons ago was that that kind of thing didn't happen here. And so I began to research and I found, whoa, it did happen here. (laughs) Right. I began to uh, put together a list of uh, of out-of-Project Blue Books files of uh, cases that were here in Oklahoma. And uh, several of them I was very intrigued with. Uh, One of them was a 1966 case of three civilian corpsmen uh, in training that were over there in the Tulsa area. And they reported they saw this thing in the sky. And they drew a picture, and they gave the whole nine-yard report. And then the file cover, which is usually the part that nobody ever got to see but the file cover, said that they had seen an airplane. But when you look at the other papers that are with that, that in that time period most people would not have been able to have seen, they had drawn a sketch There was the little object they had seen in the sky, and it was disappearing into this huge black object Mm. that totally blanked out the stars in the sky, and they never said anything about that. So with stories like that, uh, we have in Oklahoma, we have 1965, the summer of the saucers, and there are... Tremendous events that happened during that summer here in Oklahoma. Several uh, landings that were reported, that were reported to NORAD even. Wow. Some exciting, exciting things. And in prepping for uh, Volume 2, which I'm finishing right now, I have some firsthand accounts of uh, stories of people and objects they had seen that have never been shared before. So I'm really excited uh, to include
0: those and put that in, in Volume 2 of Sooner Saucers. Well, and and one case, we just posted a story today, in fact, about Miss um, Morgan in Hartshorn, Oklahoma, who had oh, yes. witnessed yes. The, the cigar-shaped, um, four, 40 to 50-foot-long to cigar-shaped craft, witnessed <laughs> by over 100 people, um, right. somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 plus people simultaneously. Um, obviously you've got a lot of material for your book. Uh, both of those, the new one, I, I I'm gonna, you're gonna go, you're gonna make me go broke is what you're going to do. <laughs> you're going to make me go broke cause I'm to go buy all these, get them here so I can, so I can read them and catch up on what you've been doing because, uh, I love the fact that you're an, an, an Oklahoma native, you're here and you are writing about stuff in Oklahoma, and that's what we love to cover is things that happen right here in our state. Marilyn, if if they wanted to go on and go broke like me, where would they find you, and where would they find uh, a place to order your books?
1: Everything that I have is available on Amazon, and they can go there and they can find me. I'm Marilyn A. Hudson, and uh, everything is there. I have a Facebook page. You can come and say hi to me there. And, uh, it's just Marilyn A. Hudson. So you can find me. I'm wearing a black beret in my picture right now. So
0: (laughs) very good. Well, look, we're going to have to have you back on because when the second book comes out, I think I want to, um, to talk to you about maybe coming and doing something in studio with us. That might be fun.
1: Well, that would be great. That'd be great. I look forward to that. I hope that you enjoy it. I hope that everybody does. And I, uh, Just remember that every book gets better the more that it's read.
0: Absolutely. I agree. (laughs) I agree. Marilyn, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, I'll be in touch, and we'll have you back on soon.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Okay. Thank you. Uh Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Marilyn A. Hudson, everyone, a fantastic author here in Oklahoma, She's done some work, man. All this stuff about the axe and the railroad and, and people don't fall asleep on railroad tracks. What what is that? Nobody falls asleep on a damn railroad track. I mean, I mean, let's be honest, right? We've all walked railroad tracks. I mean, I, I you know where I grew up, we had a I didn't grow up here in Oklahoma, full disclosure, but we we would go to the railroad track, you place the penny on the track, that, it runs it over you pick it up you get a flat penny you would have to be either a complete idiot or something wrong with you to get near that train car as it's as it's rolling because it is massive you can tell it's heavy you can tell that it's it wants to kill you if you get in its space it wants to take you out and to fall asleep on the tracks Aaron Come on. Nobody's falling asleep on the tracks. You guys need to go pick this book up. Marilyn A. Hudson is the author. When Death Rode the Rails. God, I wish I'd come up with titles like that. That is fantastic. That's a great title for a book. When Death Rode the Rails. Early 1900s here in Oklahoma, 1900 to 1920. Um, It was a crazy time in this state's history. Of course, it wasn't even a state until 1907. And so she's covering a lot of ground, covering a lot of material, and uh, I can't wait to dive into that. And then, of course, she's got uh, Sooner Saucers, that, that book. I've got to pick up that first one. The second one, getting ready to come out, uh, Oklahoma UFOs, 1947 to 1969. Again, another, another crazy, crazy time period coming out of World War II into Korea, into Vietnam, A lot going on politically. Um, Man, there's just a lot of stuff that that, that she can cover in these books. And uh, we're excited to have her on as a guest. We appreciate Marilyn A. Hudson for coming on. And, um, yeah, we'll have her back for sure. We'll have her back. Maybe we get this uh, Sooner Saucers. Again, another great name, Sooner Saucers. Almost sounds like it ought to be a, a football team or a soccer team or a... It could be a bar. Who knows? Yeah. Um, we'll see if we can't get Marilyn back on and get her in studio so we can uh, put a face to the name and get her take on her latest work. And 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 do go find her on Facebook. Tell her you heard her right here on on OGS Into the Dark. Tell her tell her that uh, you're going to pick up her book. I, I I would almost bet you could even talk to her and maybe mail her. The book, and she'd probably sign it for you. I'm not saying she will. I'm just saying, very nice. I bet she probably would do that for you. Um, next guest, uh, I want to mention this too. Uh, local musician uh, Chuck Cooley is going to be here in studio this Thursday. A couple of days. Uh, Chuck's got a great story. We're going to dive into that. We're going to dive into his music. We're going to dive into his influences and uh, what life is like as a rock and roller. So you don't want to miss that. That's going to do it for this one. Um, Thank you again to Marilyn A. Hudson for being our guest. We appreciate it. We'll have you back, Marilyn. Thank you so much. For Aaron the Baron, I'm Brad Heath. We'll see you next time right here on Into the Dark.